Hey everybody, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Watson. And if you have been following my journey by now, you know that my name is Amy Watson and I am your host. Today we continue with season one of our podcast, Wednesdays with Watson, PTSD, Jesus and Me, with a portion of my story and a subject that has been on my heart, but I've always felt massively unqualified to even attempt to tackle this subject. But as has been the case with this entire podcast experience, I'm usually just the one type in the words that gets recorded by a voice that sounds like mine, but the words often aren't. This is an endeavor that I take seriously, and my prayer is that whatever lands on your phone is exactly what you need. I will attempt to tell you the story of how I learned and am learning to forgive the trauma makers. It's a question I get asked a lot, and I never really have a good answer, but I will try to share my heart with you as it is the desire of mine for you to know what forgiveness is not as much as maybe what it is. And so maybe together we can figure a little bit about what both of those things are. In deference to my fellow PTSD patients, survivors, especially as it pertains to to domestic violence, I do want to mention that I share part of my domestic violence story in this episode. I've made every effort to be as vague as possible. We will put the timestamp in the show notes in case you just want to skip those two minutes. Before we dive into this subject, please make sure that you guys hit that subscribe button and throw some stars or a review. The podcast is getting recognized without much promotion, and that is because of you. So please keep sharing this message, as the impact of a small decision to like it or share it or review it could make this podcast land on the phones of people you don't even know. I would also love it if you would follow all social medias. My Instagram is author Amy Watson. Facebook and Twitter is Amy Watson Author. And then, of course, my website, amywatsonauthor.com. Now, come on with me as we start a little journey down memory lane. A little more of my story and the night that changed everything. Prompting me to ask a question that changed even more. And then capstoned by an experience that only the star of the story could write. Let's see if we can figure out what this forgiveness thing is all about. Because as the lyric in the blockbuster Hamilton says, forgiveness, can you imagine? What if we understood it? and practice it as much as humanly possible. Can you even imagine? Here we go. Let the healing continue. Eighteen was the magic number. Once I was 18 years old, the state couldn't keep her from contacting me, and they couldn't stop me from contacting her. I worked hard to forget what it felt like to see that note on the door that got the state involved in the first place. It was a warm April day, and after an investigation and an arrest of of my mom's live-in boyfriend, the state, after having removed me, had finally deemed her competent to take care of me. And so the social workers encouraged me to put some of the donated clothes that I had gotten, some plastic bags, and jumped in the car for her to take me to the place that my mom lived. I don't think I ever called it home. As soon as the social worker put the car in park, I saw the pink note on the door, and I knew it wasn't good. I didn't even get out of the car, but the nice lady did a poor job of hiding the familiar handwriting on the sticky note. Gone to get married. Mom. Her boyfriend had been released from jail, and apparently they both skipped town. 
My eyes still water a little bit telling you this story and my stomach drops. And the same thoughts go through my mind. How? Why? What's wrong with me? What did I do? I have since forgiven her so many years later, but in no way have I forgotten. Not in the truest sense of the word. And my soul bears the scars of the decision that she made. My very being remembers. There has been no forgetting. And so the subscription to the thought process that forgiving is forgetting is not a good thing. And before I attempt to tell you my forgiveness story, I can absolutely tell you that at least for me, forgiving is not forgetting. It wasn't a surprise to anyone after those six months that I went in contact with my mom. Daughters want their moms, and I was no different. And so six months after my 18th birthday, I saw her for the first time since she abandoned me just three years prior to that. It was at my high school graduation where I delivered the valedictorian speech. I avoided eye contact with her in the audience. I did find Mom McGowan in the crowd, though. And it was her smile and the glitter in her eyes that actually lowered my heart rate so I could deliver my speech on Philippians 1.6, that verse that talks about how God always finishes the work that he starts in all of us. Telling you this story on this podcast today is the fulfillment of that very scripture. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That speech was delivered on June 6, 1990, with my mother in the crowd. Just a little over a year later, I stood in an ICU unit staring at her in a hospital bed. Her body was covered with tubes and machines, and the sounds of the beeps and the whooshes told us that she was still alive. I was in my first semester of my sophomore year at college and still lived about 120 miles from where she lay in the hospital. Ironically, the same hospital where I was born, the place that my life began. And now they were telling us that her life was ending. I only had one weekend off a month, and so I had picked a cool fall weekend in October to spend with her in the IC unit. I refused to leave the hospital, and the nurses took just as good care of me as they did her because what they saw was a hurting kid. And so they gave me warm blankets and snacks, and I know that that was their way of showing deep compassion for the decision that was coming for us. We were just kids, but the decision to pull life support was necessary, and I knew it. But on this weekend, I just wanted to be in the same room with a woman who gave me life. Maybe I could find some peace in between the beeps and the heart monitors and the swish of that ventilator. Maybe, just maybe, I could forgive and figure out a way to forget like I had been taught. I was pretty sure I was never going to forget 14 years of damage from her, but I didn't want her to die, and I, and I hadn't told her that I had forgiven her. But I needed that to be true, and that was my goal that weekend in the hospital room. The hospital was situated just blocks from where we grew up, and the view from her room was familiar so it's hard not to see the trauma places and experience resentment and bitterness for the woman dying in the bed behind me. The beeps of those machines kept telling me I had more time. So I stood at the weekend, that window all weekend, trying to figure out how I could absolve her for all that she had done. After all, that is what I thought forgiveness meant, like literally just pretending it never happened. When it came time for me to leave and go back to college, I stood as close to her bed 
as I had all weekend. I looked down at her hand, and it was so bony, and the skin just hung there. I looked at her face, and even though she was intubated, I could see every single bad choice she had ever made carved on a tired and a sad face. I thought about grabbing her hand before leaving the hospital to go back to school. In a way, it would have been my way of telling her that we were okay. But we weren't okay. I still had questions, and she was never going to wake up and answer them. The machine beeps had really been comforting, often quieting my racing brain, as I both tried to say goodbye to a mom, but also come to terms with her complete lack of care for us, and that she never would ask me to forgive her. So I looked down at her hand again, and then to her chest, and I watched it rise and fall. Swallowed the bile that invaded my throat and turned and walked out of that hospital room. I couldn't even bring myself to grab her hand. I wanted it all to be okay. It just was never okay. I knew she was dying. I hoped I'd have another chance. I walked out of the hospital just in time for the wind to blow this coffee smell, and it absolutely assaulted my senses, and it definitely reminded me of Jacksonville where all the trauma happened. The Maxwell House headquarters across the river could tell so many stories of so much trauma. I cried as I drove back to school. I had been told many times that I was to forgive, but that was included with words like forget or phrases like treat it like it never happened or treat the person like it never happened. And none of that seemed doable to me. All of it hurt in the deepest parts of me. Just a few months later, I got the phone call and it wasn't a surprise. Just 10 days after I turned 20 years old, my sister called me at college and told me it was time and they needed us to sign paperwork that we would be removing life support. I wasn't even old enough to rent a car to drive to them, but I was faxing paperwork to the hospital, giving them permission to remove life support. By the time I made it to Jacksonville the next morning, she was already gone. She lived 50 minutes off of that life support machine. We did the best we could to have some sort of memorial service for her, but it was all very obligatory, and I couldn't wait to get out of Jacksonville. I had no idea the darkest days were still very much in front of me. As I attempted to grieve the death of my mama, I often was riddled with guilt of that memory of refusing to grab her hand. I was and am so sad that she stepped into eternity thinking that I had not forgiven her. Because she was right, I had not. At least I had not made any formal, quote, transactions to do so. And in my mind, her exit off the planet kind of made forgiving her inconsequential and I was still operating under a faulty definition of forgiveness, too. I could not meet those standards of forgiveness, so I stopped trying. I went back to school and did what I did do. I hit the gas. I lived life wide open, avoiding thinking of my mom or my unforgiveness. I did, though, make a vow to never leave things unresolved with another person again. And no matter how badly that person hurt me, I would immediately, quote, forgive Whatever that meant, I was there for it, and strove to avoid conflict at all costs. I never wanted to feel that pain of regret again. Just two years later, I had married and was hopeful of a life that was different than the one I had lived. I was never the girl that dreamt of a wedding or a family. Every day seemed like a bonus to me. So when I met John Watson, I leaned into it and determined to be loved and to love with everything I had too. And I had my companion of regret that would make me better at relationships, that would make me more worthy, that would make things bad not happen. 
I was still so determined to never feel the regret of unforgiveness again. So if those things happened, I was immediately going to let it go. But I tried to be perfect. I wanted to be everything he wanted and needed. He had demonstrated verbal abuse long before the first physical hit. I just absorbed the pain of his words, but determined not to hold it against him or forgive him or whatever would make me feel less fearful of that regret again. I loved him, and I did not want to keep records of his wrongdoings. I wanted my love for him to be the first Corinthians 13 kind of love. I even had that passage read at our wedding. And so I worked hard to overlook all the things in my, quote, forgiveness of his abusive behavior. I kept telling I kept myself in that line of fire. And in a domestic violence situation, this can be deadly. This is how I understood forgiveness. We forgive and we move on with life. And so that is what I tried to do. And now I realize that those definitions is not forgiveness and often dangerous. Then the first hit from him came. Nothing prepares you for that first hit. I really can't explain how confused I was. It didn't stop after the first hit on that first day. It only ended after he locked me out of the house after dragging me to the door. The bleeding in my ear had just finally stopped by the time he was knocking at the neighbor's door where I went. And he acted like nothing ever happened. And in my mind, the throbbing nose and the bruise on my head felt like nothing of the regret of withholding forgiveness. And so I just marched on. But that first hit has a strong fingerprint on my soul. That was the time I was convinced that I was just on this planet to be mistreated by others. We never talked about it. The abuse just got more frequent over the years, and I kept, quote, forgiving him. But I was pretty sure that at some point, John Watson was going to need to be, be forgiven 491 times. One more time than Jesus told Peter that we were to forgive. As the abuse got worse, he began to isolate me more, and the need to, quote, forgive him subsided, as did the freshness of that regret that I had for my mom. I truly did not wish harm to him, but he was hurting me in my deepest, deepest parts and eroding any self-worth I had left. His words, his lack of care for me as his wife, shredded me. Seeds of hurt that I had tried so hard to sweep off the surface of my heart began to take root and bitterness came in. It was lonely. I had not told a single soul that he was hitting me. One night, I was sitting in the balcony of North Jacksonville Baptist Church at a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert. I was there with a college buddy, and it felt good to be in a church. I hadn't been in one for a while. I enjoyed the concert, but at the end, I found myself literally unable to move, literally stunned, and my shirt was soaked, and my tears was what soaked them. Stephen Curtis Chapman at the time had teamed up with it organization called End of the Spear, a mission organization famous for, this, for a story of where four missionaries went into an Ecuadorian forest and were brutally murdered. Two of those names sound pretty familiar to most of us, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. They were brutally murdered by the tribesmen, with the actual death coming by way of the end of a spear into the center of their heart. I had heard this story before and maybe had even read a book by Elizabeth Elliot, but I was not prepared for what Stephen Curtis Chapman had for us that night. As it turns out, Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, went back to the village. Shortly thereafter, her nephew Steve Saint joined her. 
and together they were part of a team that finally introduced successfully the gospel to that tribe. I was stunned by the act of forgiveness and the compassion that that family, the family of Nate Saint, demonstrated to that Ecuadorian tribe. I was pretty sure they hadn't forgotten, nor could they pretend that the murders never happened. But they clearly made some sort of transaction with God that equated love, that is re- and that love reached that tribe for Jesus. As I was processing that and ignoring the rolly tears, I begged God to help me forgive my mama and the monster that was waiting for me at home. But then Stephen Curtis Chapman was not done with us yet. He then said, and I would like to introduce you to Chief Men K. He is the chief that killed Nate Saint. The man, short in stature, shuffled out to the stage with a taller man, his interpreter, I thought. When Steve Saint began to translate Chief Menke's story of his father's murder, I violently heaved with emotion. I was simply overtaken by compassion of the man translating the murderer's story. As of that date, Steve Saint was still living among the tribe, still living in close community with Chief Menke, who he calls grandfather, building aircrafts and flying in supplies for them. The tribe that took his father out of his life when he was just eight years old was still very much a part of his life, and he loved them deeply. My friend sat quietly beside me, and the entire church was silent, as I, all of us, I imagine, tried to imagine this kind of forgiveness. It was heavy in the room. You could feel it. There's that lyric again from Quiet Uptown. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? I thought. Surely, if they can forgive people that murdered their families, I can forgive Mom and John. That was the night I started these transactions that I call forgiveness. But that's what they were, transactions. It also was an evaluation of the meaning of forgiveness, sending me to the scriptures. It was also an evaluation of what I needed to, to heal before I was even capable of making such transactions. It would have been easy to be motivated to forgive both of them by that feeling of regret I have, had after my mom died. But I truly wanted to forgive them. And after what I saw on that stage, I knew it was possible for me to forgive them both. I wasn't comparing the pain, but I knew that it was possible. I'd be lying if I told you that somewhere deep inside that my core motivation, when I chose to forgive, pursuing forgiving John, was that our marriage would be restored, that he would get help, and that the years of pain would at some point be a distant memory, one that both of us could could use to help other people. But that isn't how the story went. And ultimately, I did leave him. And he provided many, many, many more opportunities to forgive after I left. But I will never forget the last words he said to me in person. I'm so sorry, he said with tears in his eyes, as I was getting in the U-Haul with just a fraction of my earthly belongings. I remembered in that moment that Ecuadorian eternity tribe that was eternally affected by the decisions that I made at that moment, that day that I left. And so as I closed that U-Haul door on that day, I said, I forgive you. And then I left. After a few years and a lot more trauma from him, 
I received the phone call that John had been found dead in a hotel room. He died alone, and that made me sad and confused in every gamut of emotion. But one thing I did not feel was regret. Nothing like the day. I got the call that my mom stopped breathing. I meant it when I told him I forgave him, but the years following were years of choices to do so over and over and over again, and those choices were driven by one thing, one thing I learned that night so many years before, a lesson demonstrated to me by the family of Nate Saint on that stage at a Stephen Curtis Chatlin concert, and that word was compassion. And so I asked a question, and that question changed everything for me. What happened to both of them? What hurt were they tending inside of them? Who or what broke them? Those genuine questions turned into real compassion for both of them. I mean, I will never know the answers to the questions, even though I hope one day to get them at least from John or from family members, but the answers are not to come. I often tell people that I make trans- transactions to forgive both of them because for me, it was never a one-time deal. The pain both of them dealt for me is real and it left scars. And so I often have to tend to the compassion in my heart a little more than the hurt in my heart. It keeps the seeds of hurt on top again, easily swept away by the gift and the broom of compassion. A few years ago, I was sitting at a Monday Thursday service at a church in Lacanto, Florida. Lacanto is not my hometown. It is nowhere near my hometown. And the fact that I moved there is kind of a miraculous story in itself. It is a small town situated in a large county with little commercialism, and most people have never heard of it. I tell you that because what happened next was the pinnacle of my decision to focus on compassion for their hurts, thereby healing mine. Because it was a Monday-Thursday service, it was a somber occasion, and the pastor had a huge wooden cross at the front of the church. Each of us lined up with a piece of paper and a nail, with the idea being to nail things to that cross, already covered by it, by what Jesus did for us, but things that we couldn't let go of, things we wanted to symbolically crucify, and more accurately remember who was crucified so that it could all be okay. And so I wrote on my piece of paper, Mom and John, got in line, nailed it to the wooden cross, and made my way back to my seat. I closed my eyes and listened as others hammered their own pain to that cross. It was an amazing experience. And then there was a tap on my shoulder. Amy, I want you to meet someone, my friend said. I'd shared that end of the spear story with her for good reason. Her name was Anne Saint, and she was Steve Saint's daughter-in-law. We had somehow landed in a church where the saints were members. She, she reintroduced me on that day to Steve Saint, but then I saw the man standing beside him, Chief Menkei, the man who shoved the end of that spear into the chest of Nate Saint. He was standing right there in front of me in a big church in a little town in Florida, right next to Steve Saint, who was translating for him. I was stunned. There it was, redemption standing right in front of me the product of compassion standing right in front of me. I sobbed. They didn't ask why. It didn't matter. I was stunned at the opportunity to meet this man whose life had been transformed by Jesus. 
And when we closed in a worship song, he didn't understand a single word of it. But his blood-stained hands were raised to the great Redeemer of it all. And it reminded me of the song that Stephen Curtis Chapman closed that concert with that night. Chief Menke sang the words that night in his native tongue. My Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. So, what is forgiveness? Have I even answered that question for you? Probably not, as I have a disdain for definitions we normally hear about it. And we certainly are wrong when we tell people it is a one-time decision, that it means that you will forget, or that you should not remove yourself from a toxic situation. Most people aren't going to like how I'm able to forgive because it doesn't seem fair. Why should we have compassion on those that hurt us? Well, that Ecuadorian tribe is all following Jesus now. And had Rachel Saint not figured out a way to follow the compassion in her heart, who knows if they ever would have been reached. And that would have been tragic, just as tragic as a person who is living with those seeds of hurt burying themselves deeply into the hearts of people who can't let go. You see, love requires that you let it go. And here's a spoiler alert. You still love the person that hurt you or it wouldn't hurt. Love is final. You don't unlove somebody. And it requires you to find a way to forgive and to live in that forgiveness and in that redemption. We see this in the Bible with Joseph. He forgave his brothers out of deep compassion for them, even though they no way deserved it. But the best example of all was the star of the story, Jesus. He felt such deep compassion for the very people, you and me, that nailed him to that tree, that his final words were, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Compassion. Is it the secret sauce to forgiveness? Ephesians 4.32 mentions compassion before forgiveness because maybe that's what needs to happen first. I don't know. But I do know that forgiving the trauma makers is healing to your own heart. It has been to mine. Without viewing both my mom and John through the lens of compassion, it would be so easy to live in the repercussions of what both of them did and live a substandard version of myself. But just as Jesus said in Jude 24 and 25, have mercy on them, have compassion on them, and you will make a difference. If you're listening to me today, maybe you are that difference. A very special person taught me one of my favorite verses that is in 1 Samuel. And the verse goes, I will not offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And forgiveness is a sacrifice and it costs us everything but it can do so much more. Thank you for spending this time with me. I realize that I may have left you with more questions than answers, but the reality is I am telling you how and why I can forgive. I am telling you how and why I could not hold it against my mom and John and all the things that forgiveness can bring. I realize it doesn't seem fair, but I am grateful for the gift of compassion and love that allows me to be even speaking to you today. I reject typical definitions of forgiveness, especially in domestic violence situations, and strongly advise against subscribing to just standing in line for more pain. That isn't forgiveness, that is faulty logic. The next podcast will have a trauma survivor that is living in the arena of forgiveness, and she will tell you how she got to her place of forgiveness. It is truly different for all of us, but it is a place that we all need to find, so that the pain doesn't keep on giving to you. It is true that in order to be given 
forgiven by God, you have to forgive. But I submit to you that forgiveness is a fruit of being forgiveness. And so if you haven't made the choice to trust in Jesus, please reach out to someone who can help you do that. You are so loved. And compassion spurs my heart to tell you that if this season of Wednesdays where Watson has done nothing else, it is my hope that if you don't know the star of the story, that you will want to know soon. Because he is forgiveness. And he is the reason we can have compassion. He is the reason you can live in victory. That victory is so sweet. And honestly, it is the only way that we can live in victory of forgiving those who just hurt us time after time after time. In my opinion, that is the only way that I got the compassion put in my heart. I just heard this morning, sometime over the last year, we lost that chief, and he is now spending an eternity in heaven. And the only reason why he is doing that is because somebody found compassion to forgive. Somebody found compassion and understanding, as Jesus said in Jude 24 and 25, that compassion makes a difference. I do hope that somebody on the other side of my voice today is the reason why we do this podcast and that somewhere, somehow today, you will find your own way of forgiving those who have harmed you and you will find your own peace so that you can live in such victory. Looking forward to spending some time with you guys again in a couple weeks as we bring on another survivor of domestic violence as she tells her forgiveness story.